Please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 127. Hear God's holy and inerrant word. A song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Let's pray. Father God, we look to your word this morning, and it is our desire that we might uh, grow, that we might uh, be sanctified by uh, your truth. We love you, and I pray that as we express our worship to you and our responses to this uh, scripture, that uh, you would, uh, by your grace, quicken the word to our hearts and uh, make it effective in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as you can tell from your bulletins, I was planning to continue on in the book of Acts, but I just kept having this nagging feeling that I needed to bring you some encouragement with regard to what families can do. And so yesterday morning, I decided to change uh, the topic. Uh, There is a lot of discouragement in the world today. You can look at the websites that are already popping up concerning the 2008 uh, elections and... (laughs) Just reading them makes me really depressed. Uh, Candidate A, you know, seems fairly solidly pro-life, but man, he's got such socialistic practices that he's insisting on giving. He says uh, George Bush is not nearly as compassionate as he ought to be. And I think, oh, whoa. And then candidate B, um, he advocates, you know, that we withdraw some of the socialism that we have, but he advocates homosexuality. And candidate C... I don't even know what he believes. It just seems like empty, hollow rhetoric. You know, he's for America. He's for American values, whatever that means. And you can just get kind of tired of of looking at it after a while. Now, there are strategists out there who are pretty skilled at knowing how to play in this field. And I just praise the Lord for them. But what do us peons uh, do when year after year, it seems no matter who is in office, things seem to be getting worse? Well, I'm actually optimistic Though Christians must fight on many fronts to preserve our freedoms, I really don't think that the biggest battles that we have to fight are out there in the world. I think they're in the church. There's a lot of battles that need to be fought within the church before the church is going to be built as a winning army. And one of the battles is just with our own discouragement and cynicism. We give up too easily. Uh, we feel helpless in the face of political tyranny when we really have every reason to be optimistic. And I hope to share a few of those reasons with you this morning. Uh, it really is interesting that on quite a number of issues over the past few years, homeschoolers have won simply because they have not been c- cynical. They have not abandoned the political process. Uh, even this past week, I think the lobby of the The homeschoolers uh, just did a wonderful job. They made a big difference. And this psalm, I think, gives us some perspective on what difference families can make. The first encouraging thing that I see in the psalm is that humanism 
is self-destructive. Verse 1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Now, he's not denying that humanists can build fine houses or that they can guard cities. But he is saying that ultimately all their work is futile because it is self-destructive. Now, let me repeat that. All humanism is self-destructive and vain, whether it is conservative or whether it is liberal. Uh, Verse 1 says that the humanistic contractor builds his house in vain. The humanistic city magistrate guards his city in vain. Verse 2 says the humanistic laborer runs on that treadmill of his labor in vain. Now, it may seem like they're going somewhere, but God has guaranteed that for all of their efforts, there are such major uh, gaps in what they are doing that they are no threat to the Christian whatsoever. Now, let me start off by defining humanism. Humanism is simply the concept that man is the measure of all things. And you can find that just about anywhere. That's the standard definition. Man is the measure of all things. I do something because it benefits me, because it pleases me. It relates to me. The humanists of verse 1 did not look to the Lord for how they ran their affairs, nor to the laborers of verse 2. does not view life from God's perspective. Now, certainly he may think about God in devotions. He may think about God when he's in church, but he does not submit everything he does to the laws of God. And that means that we Christians can be acting like humanists at certain places in our lives as well. Ecclesiastes defines humanism as living life under the sun rather than under heaven. Now, both of today's points are supposed to be encouraging. I don't know if I'm going to be successful in that or not, but they are supposed to be encouraging. Point number one, the humanistic world view is self-destructive. Point two, Christianity will ultimately triumph. And so let's look at how humanism will crumble. The word vain is translated elsewhere with these words. Desolate, desolation, destroy, destruction, storm, wasteness, Emptiness, ruin, devastation, vanity, and ruin. And so it's a pretty negative evaluation for what happens when we leave God out of the picture. Um, Now, sometimes Christians, for pragmatic reasons, will say that, um, you know, they'll work and... Uh, with unbelievers and they think we need to leave the Bible out of it in order to be effective, whether we're talking about politics or our family rearing or uh, some other area, maybe economics. But to leave the Bible out of the equation is to give the impression that we don't have anything that we're upset about with humanism. It's just one brand of humanism against another that we prefer. Okay, we're acting as if it's just human authority that we are working with. And I think this is one of the problems with the culture wars of today when they are said to be the difference between liberalism and conservatism. Or conservatism, I think, is the way it's uh, pronounced. Really, the true culture wars are all humanism against the Lord Jesus Christ. And God says that unless the Lord is clearly lifted up, our plans will not succeed. Now, to me, this is encouraging. Now, let's trace out humanism's self-destruction, first of all, in its social structures, uh, verse 1, and then in its dominion, verse 2. Verse 1 again, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Uh, One of the first contrasts we see is that 
between a house, the building of a house in verse 1, and the building of a household in verses 3 and following. Now, the word house can be uh, a metaphor for household, but this is really a brick and mortar uh, type of a term and emphasizes that in the first three verses, it's talking about the accumulation and the guarding of things. At the end of Solomon's life, he expressed all kinds of regrets because he had spent a lifetime of pursuing and guarding things rather than raising godly children. The pursuit of the American dream did not start in America. Uh, You'd think it was an American who wrote uh, the book of Ecclesiastes because it describes what goes on today all of the time. This psalm here has an intentional contrast between things that are pursued in verses 1 and 2 and people that are pursued in verses 3 through 5. Now, what is the highest priority in the average humanist's home? I believe it is the accumulation of things and pleasures and comforts and more things. Now, certainly there are humanists who try to raise a a good family, try to be good parents, try to provide good homes. But the focus of attention in the average American dream home is the house, the structure, the material goods that are being accumulated, the clothes that they've bought for their children, the latest Nintendo games to pacify their children, um, widescreen digital TV, the newest, you know, gadgets uh, that are out there. It's the pursuit of the material. Now, what did Christ say? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So he does add things to our life, right? He's not against having things, but he wants them to be a stewardship by those who do everything that they do to the glory of God. Now, if the word vain means that humanism is self-destructive, there must be a reason. And actually, there are quite a number of reasons if we really wanted to dig into this. Uh, reasons that relate to economics and social issues and dynastics and other things like that. But I just want to point out a couple. If you've been following the population statistics around the world, as I have over the last 15 years, you'll notice something very interesting. Wealthy humanists are not replacing themselves. Okay? In fact, the wealthier they are, the less they are replacing themselves. In some countries, it's due to uh, infertility from venereal disease and infections and abortions. But in many cases, it's simply because these people don't want to have any children. Their desire is to have less and less children uh, over time. Uh, Homosexuals certainly are not reproducing, but neither are the feminists, the socialists and the libertarians. And if it wasn't for Christians, the average the, the American uh, population would be much like Europe's plummeting downhill. Now, for any given nation, in order to sustain your numbers, to replace your numbers, the figure is you need to have 2.1 children per woman who is of childbearing age. 2.1 children. And America is probably the highest, I think uh, several sources say that they're, they've got the highest replacement rate of any Western nation, and they're at 2.0, just under the replacement um, ratio. But in most countries, it is going downhill very, very quickly. And when they don't want to produce, or like homosexuals, they cannot produce, how do they expand? Well, they do it by recruiting new humanists, recruiting new homosexuals. And where is the chief vehicle for this recruitment? Well, they have said it's in the 
government schools. What would happen if the government schools were closed down? These infertile people would have a very tough time carrying their agenda into the next generation. Okay? Humanism would be instantly reduced. And what is so ironic is that Christians gladly hand their children over to the humanists to say, please disciple my children uh, for me. They gladly hand them over. And it boggles my mind that Christians simply do not get this. What is the number one reason why Christians send their children to government schools? It is money. It's money. Now, some people say to be missionaries, and we'll look at that in a moment. Uh, that's the number two, but they can't afford to uh, uh, educate their children. It's a money issue. And so uh, that means that they're playing the same self-destructive game that the humanists are. Now, how do we make America a Christian nation? Well, I would say step number one is to stop letting humanists disciple our children and to take seriously verse 4, which says that we need to keep our children in our hand as arrows in the hand. Not shot out yet, but in the hand. Uh, those arrows must not be shot out prematurely or they will become crooked. They need to be straightened, fitted, feathered, sharpened, and polished. And if the church in America would simply take that little step, I think it would hugely, hugely undermine the humanist power base. And so it shouldn't surprise us at the statistics that are out there. They're very alarming statistics that a huge majority of Christian young people completely leave the church by the time they enter into college. Uh, I forgot to look up the statistic. It is very high number. It shouldn't surprise us, though, when we are sending them to the pagans to disciple them. It should not uh, surprise us at all. <clears throat> and it's frustrating to see how the church has been responding, desperately trying to reach out. I've looked at numerous programs that churches have developed to reach these young people. And what they're basically doing is looking more and more like the world. They call it becoming more relevant. What we should be doing is the exact opposite, raising a standard around which people can rally, training our children in a radical world and life view that can make a difference, not trying to be relevant. Now, wouldn't it be great if um, we uh, all Christians not only took their kids out of the government schools, but they got onto the school boards for the purpose of defunding them and privatizing all uh, government schools. I think it'd be awesome if every school in, um, in Council Bluffs and uh, Lincoln and in Omaha was closed down because this would shut down the humanists' agenda very rapidly. Step two, start educating our own children in a consistent world and life view. We need to be applying the biblical blueprints of the Old and the New Testaments. And so don't just buy pagan textbooks, buy biblical textbooks. Step three, model for your children what it means to contend with the enemies in the gates of the city. Okay? Instead of being too self-absorbed in our educational process, we need to help our kids get out there and see what it means to engage in culture. Um, we're going to be looking at that a little bit later on, but it may mean see, helping our children to see how we contend at the abortion clinic, homosexual meetings uh, that are promoting the homosexual agenda at the city council. And we're going to be seeing later when we look at verse 5 that I think this includes even commerce. And so letting them see how we do business, uh, how we compete in that arena as well. 
But let me spend a little bit more time on the vanity or the self-destructiveness of American humanists. The first is that they're building houses, not households. And even when they're having children, they're building houses, not households. There is many a millionaire that has been so frustrated with the direction that their children have gone that they've given most of their money to a foundation. And even then they get frustrated because the foundations then start going off in different direction than they had wanted them to, uh, to do. And one of the reasons is because they have not known how to pass on their, their wealth to their children and to build a dynasty, which God calls us to do. The second self-destructive thing, they're declining in population precisely to give Christians the opportunity to outnumber the Egyptians. Thirdly, they thus can't perpetuate their humanism to the next generation without recruitment. Well, if we can cut off the source of recruitment, we can hinder the expansion of humanism. They're vulnerable at that point. Fourth, their building of things is in vain because God has ordained that the righteous will inherit the wealth of the wicked. Is this not exactly what Proverbs 13.22 says? The wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Now, that assumes, of course, that the church is being righteous. They're engaging in business that the way that they ought to be engaging in business. But we have nothing to fear from the humanists who are pursuing the American dream. Now, what's true of homes is true on a grander scale of societies. The second part of verse 1 uses the image of a city-state, and it says, unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Now, I want you to notice that the emphasis is not on issues, it's on acknowledging God. It's not like he says, unless we can reverse Roe v. Wade, we're going to be in real trouble. Now, I want to reverse Roe v. Wade as well, uh, but... uh, Here, the way it is framed is that God himself must be acknowledged and God himself must be the Lord of that city-state. He must be on the side of that city-state. Now, humanism, if humanism is the measure of all things, what is the opposite? The opposite is not conservatism. Okay? The opposite of humanism is a viewpoint that acknowledges God and God's word in absolutely everything that it does. I think too many Christians have been lured by the siren cry of conservatism and they've poured all of their money and their energies into stealth values. Now, stealth values are values that use some of the same terms that are used in the Bible, but with pagan authority, not with biblical authority. And it's interesting how over the last decades, these stealth values have accomplished nothing in the world. They've accomplished nothing. And uh, it's just a Tower of Babel that's going to fall apart because there is not the mortar of God that's going to hold it there for the next generations. Now, some forms of humanism are better than others. That's a topic for another day. Uh, But uh, we must never be purveyors of humanism. Never. Uh, Not even for pragmatic reasons, because God says all humanism is self-destructive. God is against it. Now, the problem with most pro-lifers is that they are conservatives. They are not biblicists. I think that really is the problem. And there's a radical difference. Let let, let me read to you from what R.L. Dabney said in the 1800s about American conservative movement. And I think it's something that's just as relevant today. He said, this is a party which never conserves anything. Its history has been to demure, which means to take exception to or to try to delay 
to demure to each aggression of the progressive party and aims to save its credit by a respectable amount of growling, but always acquiesces. That means gives in at last in the innovation. What was the resisted novelty of yesterday is today one of the accepted principles of conservatism. It is now conservative only in affecting to resist the next innovation, which will tomorrow be forced upon its timidity and will be succeeded by some third revolution to be denounced and then adopted in its turn. American conservatism is merely the shadow that follows radicalism as it moves forward towards perdition. I love that sentence because it shows really what the problem is. There's no anchor. What does it mean? It just means we're a little old-fashioned. Five years old-fashioned, 50 years, whatever, but we're, it's a shadow that follows. So let me read that again. American conservatism is merely the shadow that follows radicalism as it moves forward toward perdition. It remains behind it, but never retards it, and always advances near its leader. This pretended salt hath utterly lost its savor. Wherewith shall it be salted? Its impotency is not hard indeed to explain. It is worthless because it is the conservatism of expediency only and not of sturdy principle. It intends to risk nothing serious for the sake of the truth and has no idea of being guilty of the folly of martyrdom. Well, I believe that Psalm 127 is an indictment of the conservative movement every bit as much as it is an indictment of the liberal movement. It is conservative only because it is, you know, slightly behind what the Democrats are doing. It used to be about 50 years behind what the Democrats were doing, and then it became five years behind them. Nowadays, it seems like some of the Republican conservatives are going out of their way to be even more aggressive in socialism than the Democrats are. It's just an amazing, amazing thing to me. And so, what this shows to me is that God does not bless anything that does not honor him. Humanism is no match for Christ and his kingdom. It is no match for a church that is willing to affirm Christ's crown rights. The American humanist watchman stays awake in vain. Now, we may have the best military in the world, the most advanced technology, the most resilient economy, and we do. But God says those efforts are self-destructive. So if you are intimidated by the virulent humanism of the American culture, don't be. It will be replaced. If Christians don't take the second half of the psalm seriously, it will simply be replaced by another form of humanism. But it will be replaced. In fact, in America, we've already had, in effect, two or three nations. We've been replaced a number of times. Uh, we are definitely not the nation that we were when uh, the Constitution was first uh, formed. But it could be replaced by Christianity if the church would wake up and take advantage. Uh, we are no match for humanism if all that we are trying to do is insert some stealth humanistic values. We think they're Christian, but because they're stealth, they're not acknowledging God, they are humanistic, uh, into what the unbelievers are doing. Martin Luther said, did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Why did the Reformation have such a profound effect upon culture? It transformed every facet of culture because there was absolutely nothing stealth about the Reformers. Not a one of them. They were aggressive in the way in which they affirmed the crown rights of King Jesus. They were bold in the advancement of his cause. And so we don't need more stealth Christians. We need more Christians like the Reformers. And so the reason 
this is not a Christian nation has nothing to do with the power of humanism. Nothing to do with that. America's policies are suicidal. They're self-destructive. The reason we are not a Christian nation is because the church needs reforming and the families need reforming. Okay, You can't build a Christian nation from pagan educated Christians. It simply will not happen. So we've seen that humanism is self-destructive in its social structures. Homes will crumble and societies will fall without Christ. But humanism is also self-destructive in its attempts at dominion. In verse 2, the psalmist points out that every area of endeavor and dominion is subject to futility if God is not in it. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. And that's the rat race that the ordinary humanist is in. But then he adds, for so he gives his beloved sleep. They've not learned what rest in the Lord is. Now, does this mean that the Christian should not seek for security, should not be trying to build houses, should not be guarding cities, should not be staying up late or rising up early uh, at times? I don't think that that's what he is saying. Uh, If you read the Proverbs 31 woman, you'll see that she stays up late uh, at times and she rises up early. It's not talking about idleness on the part of the Christian. Instead, what it's saying is that dominion, industry, and the labors of the wicked are bound for failure, but God prospers those who follow His law, and He prospers them so much, He gives them sweet sleep. Or if the New American Standard Bible is correct, uh, He gives them prosperity even while they sleep. And there's an incredible contrast. Here's how the NASB words it. He gives to His beloved even in His sleep. Uh, NAB has all this God gives to his beloved in sleep. In other words, all of the things that the humanists are seeking after, God blesses the righteous with, and he even continues blessing them when they're not working, when they're sleeping. Okay? So don't think that God wants to hold out on you. He loves to bless the industry of the righteous, and when the righteous have a proper God centered perspective in everything that they do, they're going to have a totally different attitude toward children and toward the family than the humanist. And on this pro-life Sunday, I want to focus the rest of our attention on that proper proper view of the family. We've already seen hints of it in verses 1 through 2 when we saw that the humanist is no match for the consistent Christian. The word unless in verse 1 implies that when God builds the house and guards the city, the exact opposite is true. But let's focus uh, most of our time on Solomon's answer In verses 3 through 5, point number two is that Christianity will triumph, but it's not going to triumph in the way that those who are versed in humanism would have expected it to triumph. They might expect that God would say he's going to enable us to capture immediately the uh, robes of an empire. That's what humanism has done. Uh, Humanism has always gone after the power centers, the robes, the fulcrum points of a society. Uh, You could call the gates of a city or of a culture. Judges wore robes. Uh, Academics and civic officers wore robes. Pastors wore robes. And nowadays, with the power that the media has, you could add the media into those gates uh, of a city as well. And I think they would fit. And so the power brokers have systematically sought to capture all of the robes of a country and try to control a nation's economics and values through those roles. Now, we're going to be seeing... Uh, that God does call us to capture those fulcrum points as well. We've got to influence every area of life, but we must not do it the way the humanist does it. Christianity does not start from the top down. 
It is not a power religion. It starts from the bottom up. It's a grassroots movement. Verse 3 says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is His reward. Now, isn't that a kind of a strange way to answer the power religion that's capturing an entire country to say, here's the answer. Children are a heritage from the Lord. We might think getting a high position, you know, in government would be a heritage from the Lord. Well, eventually it is, but it has to be one from the ground up. And so he starts with children, the most helpless of all. Your children are the greatest weapon that you have in our culture. Your children are the greatest weapon that you have. And this is the beauty of God's kingdom because it completely turns everything upside down. God starts with a family. He adds to that family children. He continues through the education of those children in His covenant. The multiplication of the family's influence. It continues with those well-trained offspring beginning to take on the enemies by contending with them in the gates of the city in verse 5. Remember, three things happen in the gates of the city in the Bible. Any good dictionary will point this out. Uh, The gates were places of commerce, judgment, and rule. And that's where we want to start. But God indicates, yes, you're going to eventually get there, but that's not where you start your dominion. We want to rule, but the Bible says we've got to start by serving. Before God can trust the church with the gates of the city, it must learn to train the family. Self-government precedes civil government. Okay, it's always been a rule of Christian civics. Self-government precedes godly civil government. And so if you want a quick fix, yes, pour all of your energies into the political process and you may have a success, but then it's going to eventually be overturned because there's nothing on the grassroots to be able to sustain it. But if you want a long-lasting solution, then start with the family and then influence your family uh, in understanding and influence every other family that you can think of to start with the family. And as millions of self-governing law keepers begin to grow up, they cannot help but have some influence in the gates of the city. Now, this does mean you're going to immediately have war. <laughs> you immediately have war because humanists want to recruit your children, right? We saw that in point number one. Uh, So they will always want to interfere with your education and there should not be a single battle that is aimed at capturing your children that you are ignorant of. Don't allow your cynicism with the political process to get you to quit fighting for the rights of your children. Any bill that relates to education, to child care, corporal punishment, invasion of privacy, uh, the right to bear arms, or any other family matter is something you need to study carefully because it's probably got Satan's fingerprints written all over it. And we need to be very careful. Now, this is involvement in politics, okay? But it's to protect what God says is our heritage. The state does not give us the right to educate our young. God does. And that is something we need to defend with a passion, even if it means civil disobedience, because it is not something that God allows us to relinquish. Children are not wards of the state. They are rewards of God. And to give them up to the state is to insult God's value and his trust that he has given to us to educate those children. Now, I want you to take a look at the subpoints under um, point A. I want you to notice that this verse begins at the bottom of society, not at the top. This is a grassroots methodology. 
Our trust is not in princes, even though we have to bring reproofs to princes and God may prosper those reproofs. Uh, anytime you wish you had the government on your side or you wish that you had the kind of money that Planned Parenthood has or you had the media on your side, just rebuke yourself on that thought because uh, it's the world's way of thinking. And you know what? Planned Parenthood could overnight be defunded with just a few well-placed catastrophes that dries up the money. So, man, we're, gonna, we're in economic trouble. We've got to start cutting things or a change of government. Uh, it could be dried up uh, very, very quickly. When God sent Jesus into the world, he didn't send him into a powerful Caesar's household. He sent him into a very humble homeschooling family. And Jesus starts from the bottom up. Secondly, this verse begins in weakness, which is where God says his strength is made perfect. Third, this verse sees the family as being the most basic institution in the land. Where does Timothy say that elders learn how to rule as elders? He says they learn how to rule as elders by learning how to rule their family, how to raise a family. And the family needs to be restored to its most important role. So many churches undermine the family. Gil was telling, telling me that there was one church where the pastor said, when your family walks through these doors into the church, your family ceases to exist as a family. And what he was saying was that <clears throat> their authority extended beyond through the parents' authority to each and every individual. Uh, there was another uh, church that I knew and I just couldn't believe it. The pastor would not allow the parents to discipline the children. He disciplined the children with the paddle. Now, those kind of churches you want to avoid like the plague. So God's answer is to start with the family. And the family does not disappear. It is the most fundamental unit of the church. It's the most fundamental unit of society. This strategy requires a long-term perspective. It's multi-generational. Now, there are some things we can instantly do one of which is contending with the enemies in the gates. And God may or may not prosper that contending. <clears throat> but success is generational. If you think that we've got to have success in these issues that we're talking about in five years, you're just going to get discouraged. But if you build for the long term and you have a multi-generational perspective, you'll have a faith and a confidence in God's victory uh, overwhelming uh, the humanism. Fifth, this strategy begins the process of influencing our country with those who seem like they would have absolutely the least influence of all. A little baby can't do much, can he? And yet this is exactly where God wants us to focus. And if we're willing to do so, in a moment we'll see there's an incredible power, an incredible power that he unleashes. Point B, Christianity will triumph because of God's blessing. The words heritage and reward indicate there's more than human effort that's involved here. There's the supernatural. God's going to intervene when we take him at his word. And in our weakness, we follow his plans. He says, good, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you a heritage. I'm going to give you a reward. And we're going to see success uh, coming through. When you invert the humanist pyramid and you begin to have servant hearts within your homes, you're going to begin to see amazing things happening over a course of generations. There will be a multiplying effect to the point that your family could become a dynasty. There have been a few pagan dynasties in America that have uh, ruled, that have had incredible influence in our culture. But almost always it's because they have borrowed this point from the biblical concept of the family. They've really emphasized the family. And so under, so under point two, 
We've seen that Christianity will triumph, be given success by God, despite the fact that Christianity is not a power religion. It's not a top-down religion. Christianity is a religion of service, not of position-seeking. But point C says that it will triumph through people, not institutions. Verse 4 says, Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. An archer's primary weapon was his arrow. And this is saying that our primary weapon is our children. That's a remarkable thought. The world tends to think that the most powerful weapons you can have are money, position, office, or swords. Okay, those are things. Now, those are powerful. I'm not discrediting the fact that they are powerful, but Christ has chosen to conquer through our children. And I'm just staggered by the brilliance of God's method. While humanists have 1.6 children in their lifetime and fail to train those 1.6, we are raising up an average of five or more children and thoroughly training those children in the spiritual martial arts that God has given to us with a spiritual passion to take this nation for King Jesus. Decade after decade, there is going to be a multiplication effect. Verse 4 says, Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. So those of you who are adults, you are warriors. You're already in the thick of the battle. Your children are the arrows. And there are three points I want to draw from that imagery. First, arrows are tools of conquest and dominion. Uh, Now, if you don't believe in dominion, then if you believe you're just going to get raptured out of here any second now, you may see children as hindering your last-ditch efforts to get all of the missions accomplished that you can accomplish before Jesus comes back. I, I uh, had a book in, in my library called 88 Reasons Why Christ Has to Come Back in 1988. And this fellow was convincing people to sell their homes and uh, to just put everything, all of their finances into a last-ditch effort for missions. And I had at least two people from that camp tell me that, uh, you know, you shouldn't get married and you shouldn't have children. Well, you can see there's a certain logic there. But for us, it's entirely, entirely different. God has called us to have dominion and our children are a vital part of the division of labor that accelerates dominion over time. Now, if I take dominion by myself, I do well. So I'm not knocking singles who have been able to have an influence. You look at Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There were singles who had an incredible influence on an entire empire. Okay, So you don't have to be married and have children to have an influence. Isaiah 56 talks about eunuchs who will have an influence in the New Covenant. Praise God for people who don't have children. But where one person can have an incredible influence, think of the multiplication of that. If you can have five to ten children, So if I have five to ten children and I'm training them to have the same worldview and to be as effective as I am trying to be in my sphere of life, then I've made quite a dent in what's happening. And if they train their children and they have five to ten children, wow, I've got a little Gideon's army going on before I die even. And that's just my family. And each of you has a little Gideon's army. Now, what can you do with a Gideon's army? What can you do with several Gideon's army? The Bible says that you can accomplish a great deal with a Gideon's army. Gideon, through his men that were selected, he was able to completely remap the whole face of their culture within one year. 
So there's the timing issue. When God providentially opens the door, and you've got the, the people who are trained to be ready. And so this is the encouraging thing, looking to the future. We don't know when God's going to make those transformational points. We're just trying to raise up those Gideon armies. Now, there's a second lesson in verse 4. Before dominion can occur, those arrows must be formed rightly. And so the second point is that arrows don't grow wild. They have to be prepared. One of the functions of a soldier was to prepare his arrows. When they became warped, which they frequently did, straighten them out again. And there was a process to do that. It doesn't do any good to have 20 arrows if they're all crooked, right? Because they're just going to be flying off. They're not going to be hitting their target. So quality is more important than quantity. Now, I, if I was a soldier, I'd want both quantity and quality. Both, I think, are important. And the forming of the arrow is the area of education and discipleship and discipline. If children are undisciplined, they're not going to be flying straight either. And mentoring of those children. God has placed them as a stewardship trust and they are not going to become arrows automatically. It will not happen. Let me read to you what George Swinnick, a Puritan, had to say. Children are compared to arrows. Now, we know that sticks are not by nature arrows. They do not grow so, but they are made so. By nature, they are knotty and rugged, but by art, they are made smooth and handsome. So children by nature are rugged and untoward. That means unruly, hard to manage. They are untoward. But by education are refined and reformed, made pliable to the divine will and pleasure. Now, unfortunately, many parents have failed to see their responsibility to turn their children into dominion-taking arrows. And that is, a, that is one of our primary functions as parents. What they do is they shoot their children out of their out of their bows prematurely by sending them to the government schools to become missionaries. And they expect them to be arrows just by virtue of the fact that they have been born into a Christian family. But those children need to be taught principles of dominion. What are the biblical blueprints? How do I argue in a way that's going to be honoring to Christ? We need to look at the strategies, the tactics. We have to have the information, uh, the, the blueprints that can uh, make them effective out there. And this is the problem that I have with the classical approach to education. What it does is it takes pagan books, humanistic books, and it uses them as tutors for our children. It's still humanism, even if it's in a Christian school or if it's in a, in a home school. What we need to be doing is teaching our children how to fight with spiritual fingers. Okay? How to understand how the Scriptures apply to, to economics, to mathematics, to every area of life. This is our goal. This is what God calls us to do. Now, if I had to do my education of my children over again, man, there's a ton of things I would be doing differently. And so those of you who have regrets about how you've educated, don't don't worry about it. Start now, you know, don't have regrets about the past. I would have done things much, much different. But, you know, the very fact that you have pulled your children out of the government schools makes you far ahead, gives them a tremendous advantage uh, where they can step on your shoulders and go further than where you have been able to go. So don't get discouraged if you have some regrets. Now, I'd like to make a third observation about this arrow in verse 4. While an arrow is in the hand, it can be prepared. But once it's been shot out, it's very difficult to retrieve it and to repair it. Don't be too quick to shoot your arrows out of the nest. Um, 
my personal view is that girls should be continue to be in your hand until they are given by your hand in marriage. But don't be too quick to shoot them out of the nest. That's a that's an issue that's that's separate. One last point. Verse five indicates that ultimate victory is what is in view. Our influence will reach all the way from the family to the gates of the culture. The last clause says they shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with their enemies in the gates. Now, again, remember, the gates are the fulcrums of society. God wants us to have an influence in these fulcrums, such as art and media and business and civics. But we need to do it in a way that brings our family along, includes them, trains them in that. This means that uh, it may mean letting your kids watch you duke it out verbally at the abortion clinic. You know, it may mean uh, telling your kids why it was you got this business deal and you got this huge market share. It's because I've been applying biblical principles of being the best servant and being the most efficient. And uh, I've helped these people uh, by serving them as Christ called me to do it, but educating our children and why it is that we're having an effect. Now, this may not be as exciting as seeing a landslide victory in uh, in an election campaign, but it will have a much more profound effect in the long term. Sometimes God does allow quick flash in the pan victories. He allowed those under the kings in the Old Testament occasionally. But what happened when the next king got in? It was right back to the same old humanism. And so there are short term efforts. I think we need to value those, take them as a gift from God when they happen and and uh, but not putting all of your hope in that. More often than not, these gates of media, civics, arts, and business are only influenced as we effectively serve them and prove ourselves indispensable. Here's what Proverbs 22:29 says. Do you see a man who excels in his work? He will stand before kings. Water rises to its own level. That's what happened with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, they served the king so effectively that they became indispensable and their views, their views prevailed. They had a huge influence. Now, the Hebrew in this passage for speak is taken in the sense of to compete. So several versions translate it this way. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies in the gate. Now, if your enemies put you to shame, it means you've lost the argument. You've lost the business deal. Uh, You've lost the military contract or the science project that you were uh, hoping to serve on. If you are not put to shame, that means you've won the contract, you've won the argument or whatever it is that you are competing in. And so education can have as its goal effectiveness in the marketplace of ideas and values and even of products. Some of your children, you may sense in terms of their gifting, are going to be very effective, not in academics, but maybe very effective in some trade. And you may have to educate them in very practical issues and maybe not so much in the verbal skills. And there may be others who are going to be competing in the areas of of ideas. And you're going to have to train them in logic and apologetics and rhetoric. But everyone is going to be competing in some way or another, even if it's in a minimal way, there's going to be. Uh, some competition that they're going to have to enter into. And if you've studied much about free market economics, you know that the businessman who wins the most is the person who serves the best. Jesus said he was first must be servant of all. That's the only way a business can really grow is if they serve effectively other people. 
And so we're not talking about lording it over other people, but of making ourselves so valuable that people want us. They need us. They value what we are doing. So whether your enemies like your competition or not, this passage calls us to number one, honor God in absolutely everything that we do. Second, learn to be the best at absolutely everything that God has called you to do. Third, do your best to prepare your children to have an influence in the gates of culture. Don't shoot them out too quickly. Fourth, have lots of kids. It says many arrows, right? Have lots of kids. Fifth, model what it means to contend in the gates, whether it's going to the abortion clinic or business, whatever it may be. And then sixth, by faith, expect his blessing. He loves to bless his people. Now, again, there's a lot of discouraging things in going on in, in our nation, but I'm encouraged by how many people are training their children for long-term victory. Abortion, homosexuality, socialism, imperialism, irreverence, many other sins are on the rise. And we must oppose those to the best of our ability. In fact, I see that as an educational opportunity. We can educate our children in the process of opposing those. But our chief goal should be to train soldiers who will not give up, who know how to think, and who are unashamed of acknowledging Christ in all that they do. Make it so, Lord. Amen. Thank you, Father, for the encouragement of this passage. And, Father, so many times uh, we don't see ten moves ahead like some chess players do. And we get discouraged because all we can see is things ganged up against us. But, Father, may we look at life from your perspective and may we be diligent in uh, developing a multi-generational perspective of even now making plans of helping our children to help their children so that our plans affect the third and the fourth generations. Father, prosper this your people and help them never to give up in their desires to elevate the crown rights of King Jesus even through the weakness of our children. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.